welcome to Stamper Cinema, the film discussion podcast where you choose it, I watch it, and we discuss it. As always, I'm your host. My name is Andrew. Thank you very much for joining us today. And whether you are a new friend of the channel or an old friend, I hope you are doing well during this festive period. Now, today we are, well, shoot, we're at the tail end of season four. We only have two more episodes to go, including today's episode, which I fully expect you to enjoy. But season four has been a busy year. I think we're around 29, 30 episodes, and it's been a good year for Stamper Cinema. You know, we've increased our listenership, which is awesome. Uh, a lot more engagement on the website, which is good. And that's all a credit to you. So thank you very much for it. But let's let's talk about today. Uh, first off, we've got another author. I mean, we we love authors on Stamper Cinema. And today we've got Michael Stanglin. Now, Michael is going to be walking us through what he's been working on, um, as well as discussing his film selection for this week, which is the 2006 indie comedy uh, drama tragedy hybrid that is Stranger Than Fiction. Like, I'm super excited about this conversation. Not only is it fun, like meeting new writers uh, and learning about their like story creating process and, you know, what inspires them, but it's even better when they bring a really like kick-ass film to the table and Stranger Than Fiction is just that. Now, if you are new to this film, just sit back, you know, open up your minds because we've got quite a freaking like ride in store for you. Like this little hybrid of a movie is about an IRS agent named Harold Crick, played by Will Ferrell, and kind of focuses on his mundane life, right? Um, you know, nothing really particularly amazing. I mean, he's an IRS auditor, right? Uh, but one day he suddenly begins hearing a voice narrating his life as it's happening. And Again, while a lot of the stuff is mundane and kind of trivial to like day to day events, like brushing his teeth and how many strokes he brushes his teeth with. But things take a very, very dramatic turn when the narrator again, and he's hearing all of this go on when the narrator mentions that Harold is soon going to die. And this revelation terrifies the ever loving shit out of Harold naturally, obviously. And as a result, Harry, Harry. Uh, Harold is now in a like race against time to somehow prevent his like impending doom. Now, this film was uh, directed by Mark Forster, written by, shoot, what is it, Nick Helm? I want to say Nick Helm. Uh, no, Zach Helm. My apologies. Uh, stars Will Ferrell, as I mentioned, Emma Thompson, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Dustin Hoffman, Queen Latifah, Tony Hale. So for those that are fa fans of Arrested Development, Buster is in this. And the film also boasts like a soundtrack for the ages where you got music by Spoon, The Jam, uh, Maximo Park, Reckless Eric, M83, and, you know, some even more music by Spoon. A lot of music by Spoon, which for me, love it. Um, what else do I want to say? I guess, you know, this is a movie, as mentioned, came out 2006. I came I, I came I discovered it fairly early. Um, I don't know if I saw it in the theater. I may have, but I saw it 2006, 2007 and thoroughly enjoyed it. And like a fun fact, back when I was in grad school, I actually taught screenwriting for a year. And this film, specifically the extremely witty uh, screenplay, was on my course syllabus. So I had my students uh, read the screenplay as well as watch it. And we discussed it, uh, which it was good. Again, this movie lends itself really well for a fun, natural conversation. And I fully expect what Michael and I are about to 
unpack will be just that. So before we break down the film, Michael and I are going to first talk a little bit about his work, what his creative process looks like, and I don't know, maybe if, if he's killed uh, any of his own protagonists in his own work. Uh, just kidding. Um, anyway, without further ado, here's Michael. Again, Michael, hello. Thank you very much for for hopping on the podcast. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing I'm doing good, and thank you for having me on. Well, it is an absolute honor. I'm really excited to uh, have the conversation we're about to. In our introduction, you mentioned that you're a big fan of Stranger Than Fiction, and so we're going to get into that film. Yes. But before we do, if you wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't mind uh, introducing yourself to our listeners a little bit about who you are, what makes you tick, and, uh, you know, just kind of talking about, um, you know, you as a writer, you know, if, if right. you wouldn't yeah. mind telling our, our listeners. Um, yeah, well, I am Michael Stangland. Um, I'm from the uh, Midwest, South Dakota area. And as you mentioned, I am a writer, which is rather appropriate given the movie we're discussing. Um, and what really, you know, what br- really brought me here is not, is earlier this year, I did, in fact, release my first book that I actually got published. Um, not, not, not through a you know, your traditional model, um, but through more of a hybrid process, because I mean, I'm, I'm sure people can understand it's an increasingly growing thing where people will have noticed, you know, it can be very difficult to get into the publish, you know, into publishing the traditional way. So they'll be looking at alternatives. Um, I guess I don't know how much you want me to go over the book that I did release. Um, I mean, I would love to know as much as you would love to provide us. Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll try not to get too deep into it, but um, it is a science fiction book. It's called Junk World, The Ballad of Leroy Brown. Um, it's the core of it is it's about a um, a combat robot turned arena fighter that within his in his setting, you know, the if you're if you're familiar with things such as battle bots or for. Um, a movie perspective, if you've seen the movie Real Steel, yeah, um, that might give you some kind of idea because BattleBots and Real Steel, you know, the backdrop, you know, the kind of kind of provides the major the major influences for this for what's the, called the URCL. That is, well, you really only see a focus of it at the beginning. It kind of it's very much present throughout the backdrop of this book. But anyways, within that, he is an he's undefeated and the book opens where he is he's fights and def- and beats the only the only other undefeated robot. And so like he's on top of the world, his own little world. Except, you know, as things are, you know, when machines, you know, they go through wear and tear, they need to be shut down for repair. Well, when he's reactivated, he discovers he's kind of in pieces on a plant on basically a planet that isn't one giant junkyard hence junk world and given you know the way the thing is set up he is absolutely certain that he's he's there by mistake so the book so it becomes his mission to find a way to go home now as this is going on there is this robot that is trying to conquer junk world that goes by the top dog and for reasons that's only known to him he takes a very specific interest in Leroy Brown. And so you have Leroy's mission to go home that intermixes with in a, the, the fight to stop 
the top dog from taking over the planet. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the gist of it. Um, I, it's the, I mean, thematically, I'd say that a lot of it is the matter of, you know, what do you, what choices do you make when you're confronted with your world being flipped upside down? Like imagine you have everything sort out, you've got the world kind of the way you want it. You're going the right direction, but then life comes around and kind of flips the table on you and you have to, you know, figure out how to respond from that. Um, so yeah, it's about that. And then I'll add it and I'll add as another detail because this is kind of something that really stood out to me is this is a book where I, I really like what I managed to pull off with the villain, mm. not any, I mean, you always want your villains to be good. And I, I mean, I definitely was aiming that, but it's one of those things where after the fact, like after I was put together and I'm thinking, you know, for the sake of, you know, if I'm talking about this, you know, this book, like if I think about what are my personal favorite parts in it and I found it coming back to, well, I think my favorite parts are the parts that focus on the villain. So, mm. so yeah, that's, but yeah, that's my, I mean, that's my, what's, I mean, that's what I've got going on and you know, that is, I mean, that is basically what brought me here. What is the the origin story of of this story? Like, how did this story come to be? What what was it that you were attracted to? Uh, what was it? Was it concept? Was it character? You know, what what were you what were you drawn to in the the inception of this of this piece that for your debut novel? Yeah, well, I I did. I did kind of touch on it to a certain degree because ultimately, I mean, this story, I mean, this story really originated with the character of Leroy Brown himself. Now I did take some inspiration from this setting. I'd seen someone else create online, which was this, you know, this junk world world planet where robots are just trying to build some new lives, you know, new lives for themselves. And through that, you know, I created, you know, Lee, I created the character of Leroy Brown, which was inspired what his backstory and where he came from was inspired by, again, you know, you've got BattleBots. I mean, BattleBots is really specifically, I mean, real skill does play into that as well because you've got the, you know, the combat robots, but BattleBots especially with, um, now, I mean, with the main, really the, the modern relaunch, which I don't exactly, it's like, I don't know, it's roughly eight, nine, ten years ago that after a several year hiatus, when you know, I think it was around like the the turn of the century, really, that it, that you had people starting to starting to get this idea of putting robots together and having them try and smash each other and say, hey, who's the better engineer? Who's the better driver? Who can who's whose robot can smash the other people's robot? It's like it's like nerd sports, robot blood sports. It's just it's it's very much. It's kind of like the the best of gladiatorial arena fighting, but no one actually gets hurt. And so you get you get all kinds of crazy chaos, all kinds of carnage. But it's really it's really when you get down to it, harmless, harmless carnage. I mean, at least if you actually had robots that could think to a certain degree, you know, they might disagree depending on how you program them. I mean, the way I've got my book, it's set up is Leroy. He's definitely someone who is all in and he's definitely like he's living it up so there you know there is different ways you can go with it but so yeah from there it's just you know i 
I created my own version of this junkyard world, this junkyard planet that Leroy could go into. And so it kind of, it pretty much built from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for your hero, we're, you know, we're talking Leroy Brown and I, I don't even know if I'm really dating myself because I don't, I think it was a little piece of literature that I've just read when I was a kid, but uh, I hear the name Leroy Brown and it takes me back to uh, a character that I grew up with. There was like this series of novels when I was a child, they were called Encyclopedia Brown and Leroy Brown was his actual name but he went by encyclopedia and it was kind of like a like a like a like a like a kid version of like sherlock holmes yeah i know but the books you're I, yeah i know the books you're talking about but actually the the actual name reference um comes from the song if you're familiar yeah uh, yeah because both because both out of universe and universe and in universe um Admittedly, it's the far future, so maybe it's just a bit of a stretch. But hey, you know, you never can tell what parts of culture will survive. Right. I mean, he, he is he is very much named after the character of the song. So hmm. that so, yes, it is it is a re, it is a it is a deliberate reference, but just a different one than you were thinking. And I, I mean, I really do kind of play into that because, you know, I call it the Battle of Leroy Brown. And among the small details is that. The book is broken up into sections and rather than, you know, parts or act or I mean, in this case, I it's like the the intro is like, well, I guess, but like the main sections are each called a verse. Mm -hmm. So, Michael, thank you very much for, you know, sharing what you shared. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm always fascinated whenever I speak with 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 writers and specifically sci fi writers, because the the universes that they create are so specific and you're 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 crafting a whole universe and obviously you've taken a very high concept and you know you you've got your hero and Leroy Brown and just a few moments ago you 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 shared that one of the, your your favorite elements of this is the villain so let's let's take about let's take a little sidestep and maybe not necessarily look at some of the the uh, things that connected. I want to. I want to look at like the challenge, the the other side of the coin, right? The the things that don't uh, that maybe require whether it's research, whether it, whether it requires trying to develop this universe. Like, what are some of these challenges that when you're when you're crafting this, when you're trying to develop a whole freaking system, a whole story, like narrative? Because sci-fi. I'm not going to say is any more harder or any easier than traditional like dramatic narrative, but I'm always fascinated with, with, with the sci-fi universe because it, there's often a very, very specific uh, thought process that could pro thought, uh, thought process that goes involved to it. So I'm just kind of curious, like what, you know, what are, what are some of the challenges? What does that look like for the listener when somebody is trying to create sci-fi kind of story what 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 does that look like from in terms of uh, of creating that as a writer well i think this may be a bit of a surprising answer but i think that a lot of the important things to keep in mind are you know are things that are important to keep in mind for any story you are writing um things such as you you need to have a measure of internal consistency and you need to be you need, I mean, the story, 
doesn't necessarily need to be founded in reality, but it does need to it does need to remain internally consist, consistent where when your when your readers, when your audience is going into that story and effectively entering the world you have created, they need they need it to make sense within the confines of the world. There needs there does there needs to be rules. You don't necessarily need to explain those rules, but those rules need to be something that your your reader you can't you can't you can't see one of those things I think that you know is because when I early on when I when, you know when I was really getting into it one of the things that I think I made a mistake I don't know how much it hurt me but one of those things well you know writing fiction writing science fiction it gives you more opening to do what you want but then as you get experience you you come to realize that no I mean you you, you don't necessarily have to follow the rules as they are in reality, but it isn't in fact a license to do whatever you want. You need to be, you you need to be thinking about, okay, does this contradict anything that I have already established? Does it contradict the rules of this universe, the rules of this world? For somebody that is, uh, passionate about this and this is something that you do like do you because when I when I think of my own writing you know the the people that have inspired me the the, the authors that I that I go back to that I'm like oh yeah this is somebody that I think has a voice that connects with me and I'm I'm intrigued by that and not that I I mirror uh their work but there there's a form of inspiration so when it comes to other other sci-fi writers are there are there other authors or creators or filmmakers that that you latch on to that 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 are kind of kind of a beacon of inspiration for you well yeah there is i mean i mean there is a very big one in that um i'd say one of my biggest influences as a writer is george lucas mm. i mean maybe it'll come up may i'll sound cliche but yeah i mean it, i mean he really is the more than anyone else is the biggest influence biggest inspiration for my you know for my writing and that Mm -hmm. and i mean really i mean i am i mean my focus is writing but in some ways i see myself as much kind of a a movie guy and there was a time where my focus would have been on movies but it's there's a certain thing where i mean they all i mean at the end of the day the very important thing is you know creating a story that will, you know, people can get into, but there are different complications in different ways. And in some ways, I mean, I am, I do very much see myself as a movie guy, but I think what puts me in, what puts me focused on, you know, writing in novel form is that it's, it's the one that I can really, one that requires the smallest amount of outside, you know, it, like, it's much easier for a, for a single person to write a book versus where if you have a movie, there are definitely a lot of more people that you have to coordinate and it Mm. takes a lot more resources. You want to write a book. The only things you really need are, I mean, realistically, you could write a book with a pen on a piece of paper if you wanted to. I mean, it would certainly be a lot more difficult, but you could do it. 
Um, if you want, like, if you want to go comic books, there's a, those are like another step up. I mean, you, but that is something, again, a single person could do. It just requires, you know, a lot more steps. And so, yeah. and it's one of those things where, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I very much am a writer, but it's one of those things where I very much see myself if I could actually, you know, cheat, you know, get, get the ground running and all that, I would one day love to also dip my finger, dip my toes into those other fields and just, you know, go, you know, try, you know, try doing, try making a movie, you know, try making a comic book and it's, and all that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, if I'm, if I may ask, and I will, we'll segue into stranger than fiction after this, but I'm kind of curious just because you could set you, you mentioned a moment ago, like, well, you could use pen sheet of paper. Uh, obviously it's a little bit more complicated, but uh, what is, what is your process as a writer look like? Well, it's, it really does start with brainstorming and it ultimately starts with an idea. And I think for most of my books, and I say most because the one the one I'm working on right now, I, I very much diverted from it. Most of the time it starts out with I form an idea and then a lot of that initial initial um creation, that initial, you know, brainstorming, it happens heavily in my head. I, you know, I might have a piece of paper that I'm I might have a notebook or something that I'm writing notes and figuring things down and plot. But a lot of those pieces are ultimately, you know, being formed and being crafted. And, you know, you get, I, you know, there are, one of the things about writing that I've, I don't know the exact phrasing is, you know, there is, you really don't have a first draft that goes published. I mean, there might be exceptions, but Anytime you're going to have a final product, it is probably gone through multiple rewrites. And the thing is, usually that first draft more or less is formed in my head before I'm really getting to putting it on the page. Mm-hmm. So from there, it's, um, you know, you you're, I, I write the first, I, I write, you know, first written draft, second, however you want to phrase it. And one of the useful pieces of advice I heard is that when you're doing your first draft, the first draft is about getting something on the page, getting a completed story on the page. It doesn't necessarily have to be good. In fact, you can probably expect it's not very good. But at the end of the day, the important thing is you have something that you can work with. You have something that someone could read. And after that, I've taken to, you know, all kind of stuff. I'll kind of step back, you know, takes a few weeks, then I'll go back in, I'll read through, I'll figure out, hey, what works, what doesn't, and then I'll go back to the next, you know, the, the, the next written draft, at which point I really am focusing on, okay, I want to put something together that is actually presentable. And so from there, it's, you know, it's a matter of kind of writing, rewriting, getting advice somewhere in there. You know, if I was using the traditional pub process, I try and find, find it, it's presentable to an agent. And then, you know, the agent goes to the, and that it's possible that may have been a part, part of a flaw of what I was doing original processes. Cause my understanding was, okay, whatever you, however good it may be when you present it to the, the agent and ultimately publisher, they're going to go through it and they're going to make it get rewritten again. 
So, yeah, but as it is right now, I've I've shifted more to um, not not self-published, but specifically for this one was more of a hybrid process, which the big the big benefit and element there is that the publisher I worked with, they really took care of the logistics and making it available so that people can actually purchase this thing. Yeah. So, and thank you. Um, I, you know, I, I, I know like anytime you get into the process of a writer, you know, can, uh, it can always uh, take us down, you know, different uh, rabbit holes and everything. But uh, so thank you very much for sharing. Now, in conclusion, and this will be the the final question I've got, um, you know, about writing. Well, probably not the last question I'll have about writing. I get into many questions. (laughs) I mean, we are, I mean, we are talking about a movie that is, that's about, that's about, I mean, Literally, how you look at it, it is a movie about writing. Exactly, exactly. Um, the question that I have for you, and just it's kind of like a little segue into kind of all right, um, talking about that. But let's let's talk about what what would you like your readers to get out of Junk World, the the Ballad of Leroy Brown. What do you what do you want the readers to get out of it, of other than just enjoying it? You know, like what are yeah. what are some things? Uh, not necessarily a, a sales pitch, but you know. Obviously, you've crafted this. You've crafted the story. What what would you like the the readers to get from it? I think that really, if there is beyond entertainment a thematic value for people to think about it, it is that idea of okay, light. You know, your life has been flipped upside down. Okay, now what are the choices you're going to make? How are you going to respond? to what has happened to you are you hmm. you know are you going to go i mean are you going to go down a dark path are you going to fa- find a way to overcome and that was just really a theme that i think is i mean it's something that's touched on with not just Leroy, but it's it involves the villain it involves a bunch of smaller characters there's there's very much trying trying not to you know you know do messaging or anything but there is late in the book there is a there is very much a character that gives kind of a speech talking about okay what are you i mean what what are you going to do what are you what choice are you going to make based on where you are right now and so that's so i think that's really i mean really the main theme there's a certain element of you know maybe Hey, for people who are finding themselves in a new place in life and thinking, mm-hmm. okay, we're, you know, I mean, cause I didn't specifically, I mean, I didn't specifically write it for younger readers, but in a way, but it is something that I think is still viable for them. Um, I had one person I know who read it to, and this is kind of went through my own head as, head as well is that on the one hand, this is a book with a lot of violence in it. However, the violence is all involves robots. So it's, hey, there's, there's, it's, it's totally okay. You can, a, a kid isn't going to be reading about, you know, people, people's brains being blown out because most, because, you know, most of the damage can be repaired. So, well, Michael, thank you. Thank you very much yeah. for just giving us a little, little look at, um, at your process, what that looks like. And obviously, uh, you know, giving us a little, uh, a little backstory on your your debut novel, uh, deb- debut novel. So thank you. Yes. Um, you ready to transition into uh, the uh, the world of Stranger Than Fiction? Yes, I am ready to get going on that. All right. So 
so Michael, obviously we reached out and we connected a couple months ago and you said, yes. I would love to discuss Stranger Than Fiction. Yes. In your own kind of Reader's Digest, what is Stranger Than Fiction to you? And then we'll talk about why you wanted to talk about this film. Okay. Should I, should I start with uh, like just the basic plot? Yeah. Yeah. The basic plot. Okay. So Stranger Than Fiction is a story about a man named Harold Crick. And at the start of the movie, he is basically an office drone and he's an agent for the IRS. And he's got, well, he's got a pretty, well, he's got a life, but it's (laughs) basic, but that's basically all it is. And he goes day in, day out with a pretty routine process. And that's just the man he is. But then one day he starts hearing a narrator. There is a woman who starts narrating his life and he hears this narration and obviously he thinks it's very strange. And so he's it's it starts out where he is trying to figure out, okay, what is going on? Meanwhile, he is, you know, being an IRS agent, he is given he is assigned He's given, he does auditing and he winds up auditing this baker and there's something that goes on there. But ultimately, now, little does he know that the person who is narrating his life is a woman who is an actual author. She is a bit of an eccentric author. She is a bit of a recluse and she is in the process of trying to write her latest novel, which, as it turns out, has she has been working on for several years. And so she is having she's struggling to try and figure this out. And she but thing is, little does she know that the person that she is writing about is indeed a real person. And it turns out to be a problem for both of them, because um what really kicks the, the movie into high gear is when she mentions that, you know, Harold Crick is going to die. And so it becomes a bit of a race to um, solve the problem before Harold Crick meets an untimely end. And so you've got the one half where trying to put together this story and actually figure out how to kill Harold Crick. Well, on the other hand, Harold Crick is trying to figure out how do I not die? And through the midst of this, Harold Crick, he, well, he he develops into, you know, a fully rounded person and comes to, you know, he, he comes to actually live his life and then it all eventually comes together and culminates. And hilarity ensues. Uh, this oh, yes, absolutely. Is this a- is, yeah, this is, yeah, it's, it's very much a dramatic comedy in which there is very much heavily, heavy, heavy well, I'm not sure heavy comedy comedy elements, but there is very much comedy woven throughout of this. Some mm-hmm. of it is more subtle. There are some funnier methods, but it is very it is very closely interwoven with a dramatic story. So it balance. So it very much finds a way to balance those th- two things, which is which is very important for the way the story works, and it's kind of thematic for for the ultimate. Well, for certain story elements as well, it's mm-hmm. both it both kind of plays on both a um, meta and, an you know, both an in and out of story fashion. A hundred percent. Film is very meta and to the point where 
um, as Harold discovers that he is in a story, he, you know, he, he meets with a, with like a literary professor and they have the whole conversation of whether or not he's in a comedy or, you know, yes, a, and that, or yes, a exactly that, exactly that. And, you know, it, it's fun because obviously uh, an insanely rich cast and obviously having Will Ferrell as the lead, Emma Thompson as the author, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal as a love interest, and then Dustin Hoffman as a literary professor, and uh, Queen Latifah, who is kind of like the the assistant for the author, yes. and then Tony Hale, who is uh, uh, Will Ferrell's best friend. And Will Ferrell doesn't play this in traditional Will Ferrell kind of way. Yeah. He plays yeah, it, I'm not going to say like serious as a heart attack, but he plays it kind of a lot more subdued than anything yeah, it's, that you can really think of in similar Will Ferrell fashion. Yeah, there there are some there there are some moments in there where you see, you know, your traditional Will Ferrell leaking through. But by and large, he is playing this pretty much straight. He's not he's. Playing, he, he is more of a straight man in the general mm-hmm. sense of things. Now, there are things he does, some things he says that are comedic, but he's not he's not a character that is there to be funny. Right. Yeah. And, you know, like I I was watching this movie again recently and I crafted uh, kind of like a triple feature, if you will, like uh, watch this movie and a couple other movies in an evening or a very, very long evening. But <laughs> you can watch this movie and watch The Truman Show and watch The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And thematically, yeah. those three films have yeah. kind of this kind of uh, connection uh, between between the three in which you really just have a uh, our, our central protagonist is kind of caught in in this world. And what's interesting is the movie thematically, one of the things that looks uh, that they look at is kind of the idea of fate and the idea of free will. And what does that really, what does that really mean? Uh, Specifically when, when you are trying to grapple the concept as all those movies really did, like, do you have control of your own destiny? And and those are stories that I'm always fascinated by. And I don't know what your origin story, like what connected and what you latched onto. But for me, when I saw this movie, because I saw it, I didn't see it at the movie theater, but I saw this as soon it was as soon as it was in or rather available for like Blu-ray release. So I saw this in like 20, uh, 2007 or something and got my hands on the screenplay. But I'm kind of curious to know. What was it that connected with you? When did you see this? What is your origin story with this film? Yeah, I did originally. I did originally see it in theaters. Um, I saw it at least once. I can't remember or not. I may have gone back to see it a second time. But um, I think the the best way to sum out sum up, you know, kind of how it works is that I think I, you know, I went for Will Ferrell. But what mm-hmm. ultimately happened was I stayed for Emma Thompson and Dustin Hoffman because now now this movie I'm coming at it from a bit I think I'm coming at it at it from a bit of a different perspective because because I because very much the central character is you know Harold Crick played by Will Ferrell but what really gets what really works for me what I really latch onto is kind of is the writing element like when you get like when you get into the elements that involve you know 
Aaron Eiffel, the writer played by Emma Thompson, and, you know, Professor Jules Hilbert played by Dustin Hoffman. That is when the movie really connects to me, mm-hmm. which, which, I mean, yeah, I'm a writer, and I think that's really why where it comes from me. And so for me, now, while I do enjoy this movie, certainly, what it really works for me is if I'd say, like, I'm not sure I'd say, like, it's, I mean, I certainly enjoy it. I'm not sure I'd say it's one of my favorite movies, but on an intellectual level, like, this is one of those movies that, like, the movie that fascinates me the most to think about. Like, if I'm, you know, just exam, you know, just considering the way this whole thing works and, cons- you know, looking at it from that, and that, yeah, which, which, on some level, it's kind of funny to say that when I think that, I mean, yeah, I've kind of thought about it and, you know, there's that element, but I think this, I mean, watching this and being prepared for this is the deepest I have definitely gone into looking at it and actually putting together whatever, you know, whatever thoughts there might be there. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, what really connects it to me, connects it to me is the writing element and, you know, You've got the author, you've got the literary professor and looking at the, you know, looking at their angle of story. Like, yeah, I mean, I recognize they are supporting characters in here in, you know, Harold's Will Ferrell's movie. And yet that that is the main focus for me. That is what I am there for. And. No. Yeah, 100%. Uh, And so for the listeners, uh, so this movie, as we mentioned, came out in 2006. Now, not that uh, critics necessarily are the be all end all. But when this when this movie came out, it was well received by the critics. Um, Rotten Tomatoes has an aggregate score of 73 percent, about seven out of 10 on on IMDb. And generally speaking, well-received, you know, uh, critics gave it generally favorable reviews. The audiences, um, I don't want to say it wasn't necessarily a massive success, but it made its money. And the movie had about a $30 million budget and, you know, uh, it grossed twice that generally in, in the the box office, uh, movie came out around the same time that Borat came out, which was obviously huge, a couple other films. It didn't necessarily get buried, but, yeah. Uh, for a relatively small picture, um, you know, and I say small picture, $30 million budget, but generally a lot of that went to the cast itself because mm-hmm. the movie isn't really, there aren't well, it, many high special effects to really consider. Yeah, I with, mean, with I, I mean, I mean, once, I mean, like the biggest special effects you have in there are like Harold's, you know, thought pieces or right. whatever, mm-hmm. whatever you call them, the, the windows that, but otherwise, I mean, by and large, and I think it's one of the fascinating one of the fast thing about this movie is that a lot of the events and the way this movie works, it's it's comparatively mundane in the grand scheme of things. Like oh, 100%. once you get, I mean, if you were to remove the part about you know the life being narrated and whatever element is being manipulated, pretty much everything in this movie, even if not even if improbable is arguably plausible, Mm -hmm. which I mean, which I think is one of those things that's that really stands out about it. When you consider the, the, 
the basic concept and you consider it to what other movies or whatever stories there are that have touched on this subject because you because look it's not it's not i don't think it's a widely widely used concept but it has been touched on of this idea of hey we're writing something down that is actually real but you but i mean every other example i could think of there is some kind of supernatural element there is some major conflict going on where this this is just people trying to live their lives mm-hmm. there's there's that one key supernatural element everything else is comparatively real world and there's no one here that is a bad guy no one here that's a villain there's just you know mm-hmm. people trying to live their lives yeah and it's a really specific life that we're talking about like kind of like the most mundane i mean the whole the whole concept about this movie even going back to a wristwatch right is yeah. the fact that everything is based on routine within harold crick's life every morning he does this this is uh the, the timing that he does this and yada yada everything is to the point where our character our protagonist his whole life is defined by routine and to the point where it's that routine that's going to shake something up and that uh to the point where now our we're we're hearing about how fucking mundane part of my french his life is that our character actually hears his life being narrated to the elements of how mundane how routine how scheduled everything he does happens to the point where the line is uh that he's going to be dead and he's like wait 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 what wait what who just said that and thus begins our our film because yeah. to your point, there really isn't a uh a antagonist in the sense i mean shit you could say he's an antagonist because he works for the irs which typically <laughs> not many people think well, of I'm- as a yay kind of uh character and then he falls in love with somebody that is uh you know just say you know uh you know she she has her shop and she's doing things kind of great and in many ways you think yeah harold crick he's he's kind of uh, a force of antagonism but you know he's just assigned to audit somebody that's a tax delinquent yeah and And um it's it's really quite quite fascinating in um you know, obviously you, you've created a, a sci-fi, but this is also kind of like a very high concept story. Yeah. Which is kind of juxtaposed with some of the most mind, like, like minute characters ever of just, I'm um, just an IRS auditor. It, yeah. it's, it's quite fascinating. Kind of that juxtaposition. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, I mean, I think there's another moment in there that further kind of emphasizes the situation is when he's, when you have Harold, you know, talking with, you know, Professor Hilbert about his situation and he, you know, hey, go out and live your life. You could do nothing but eat pancakes if you want to. And like, why would you want to do that? Well, it really depends on what kind of life you're living and what the and how good the pancakes are. And that kind of I think that <laughs> really nails home the kind of life Harold is living. And it's one of those things that really helps spark i mean even with everything else that's happened it's one of those small things that really really gets the spark going to really get his life like i mean there's some gradual change happening before that but that's really when the major shift happens yeah so michael i guess you know i've I've got several questions that i want to ask but here you let's just pretend 
for a second that you're Harold Crick, right? And basically you've been told that, you know what, uh, the the end is coming and you're no longer in control of your own life, right? Because that's one of the things that we're finding out in this story. He's no longer in control. Uh, so enjoy what you've got left. You know, uh, what would you do? Because Harold, he says, well, screw it. I'm going to take, I'm, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to pick up the guitar. I've wanted to be a musician for a while. I'm going to move in with a buddy. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to date this person I'm auditing. So Michael, <laughs> what would you, what would you want to do? You know, that is, I think, a harder thing for me to say because, I mean, on some on some level, it's despite where he's at, it's at the same time easier for Hillcrick because he's basically at ground bottom for living. So he has nowhere to go but up. I mean, meanwhile, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I am, I mean, some of the stuff that I'm doing is a lot of stuff I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. But uh, but. There's also an element of in my life where I have certain responsibilities, especially at this point in my life where, I mean, it's not really a mundane thing, but at the same time, like, I don't know how much I want to get into it. Like, but for example, for the past several years, and this, this is, does actually play into my, you know, getting my book published, like for the past several years, the situation I have been in is that I have been kind of an, an in-home caretaker for my grandma where she was living, where she was living, you know, in one location with my grandpa, she like the suburbs of Chicago, where they had lived for close to 60 years. But, you know, getting up in life, they were at a point where it's more were difficult for them. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I'm here where I've been living and. And it's actually near where my grandma, you know, grew up her hometown. And so they so there was that move happen. And so for the past several years, that's one of those things I've been, and that did, as I said, you know, kind of played in the right where she has kind of, she does kind of notice that stuff. Like she knows that I'm trying to do writing and all of that. And, you know, she would ask questions to learn more, you know, find, and eventually, you know, ask, was there some way, you know, she could help me out. And that right there was kind of the switch from Okay, I'm working on this. I'm right, trying to go through the traditional publishing process. You know, you write the book, you find an agent, you find a publisher. But you know, it hadn't worked out. And thing is, you know, Lira, you know, this book, you know, I got a couple others. These were books that I had already gone through the process from. With I had Junk World, I had already gone through the the you know the traditional process, but nothing had come of it. So I had set it aside, and I thought. Look, I still believe in this. So maybe one day I can come back to it. And, you know, if I get more, you know, if I actually find something else and get some credibility. And so when my grandma is asking, hey, what can I do to help? And, you know, look at alternate publishing methods. You know, I had to decide, okay, which of these things that I have already completed, can I, can I, should I go back to? And so I ultimately picked this book and she helped me get that going. And so, so when I look at, you know, what would I do in my real life, you know, if I find this out? Well, a lot of, you know, I think a lot of the stuff that I would be doing is stuff that I'm at least trying to do hmm. now, even if I haven't necessarily achieved success with it. Yeah. But then I also, you know, I have a lot more going on in my life. So Harold, you know, Harold Crick, I mean, and that kind of is the whole point for him is that he 
doesn't have anything but his job. He is an office drone in near in nearly every sense you could think of. So mm-hmm. and that's I mean, that's I mean, and that really emphasizes the point and really kind of emphasizes where he starts from and where he goes to and why I think now we don't really see the actual, you know, the full story, whether the original version or the revised version. But I think that's part of what makes what allows you to believe that, yes, this book works the way they say it does, because it's a man because the you know, the whole theme of the novel is a man who goes from being a human human robot to being a fully rounded human being. Only to just as he getting it figured out, he loses that life he's put together saving a child. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like when I think about this movie, the Dustin Hoffman's character references like you have to die. You know, that's all she writes. And your your death, you know, is far more meaningful um, with your demise, you know, like uh, versus being around. And I don't know, there's it's again, the, the film tackles without really, really taking a super deep look at it, but just the whole concept of like uh, fate and free will. And I'm, yeah. I don't know, me personally, as uh, th- those are, those are for me, you know, and I, I love the high concept element of this film, but that for me is one of the reasons why I think this movie is something special. And yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, that's, I mean, that is definitely, I mean, both, I mean, both, you know, the themes that are laid out, in the movie and when I, you know, I look at, you know, and cause there's, cause you have multiple levels of what are the themes you have, what, what, if you look at the, you know, if you go and look at the special features, the people who put to get, you know, put together this movie, they, they go over what, what some of the themes are, but you also have, you, you may not get a good look or listen to it. Um, but when Karen Eiffel is in that, interview video she she gives some discussion about hey what are the themes of the book she is writing that is going to be about harold frick and then well i recognize those i i see um i mean what i I mean what the themes of the focus are like as i previously said where i'm the the approach i'm taking to this movie is a very different angle than the way it is kind of set up or i think most people might be watching it but even so I still find the element of, you know, there's the looming certainty of death or the living versus being alive. Mm-hmm. That is very much a, one of the strong themes that is in this movie. And, you know, you've, you know, again, what is, what is Harold's life before? And it takes con- confronting his, his imminent death to realize, to generally realize, yeah, he's alive, but he's not actually living. Are there I mean, like, are there any are there like any favorite scenes that when you think of this movie that come to mind that uh, that 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 you flag like I, I would like to discuss this scene in particular or this moment? I'm not sure about very I mean specific specific scenes in particular, but there's like I don't look at like in a sense like there are very specific scene, scenes that accomplish different things, but I look at like more of like the like the storylines, like I'm looking at, like, what are the elements that you have with Professor Hilbert and what's he doing? What do you have with, you know, 
Karen Eiffel, her effort to write. Uh, because there's, because I, I mean, I think there's, I mean, like, for, well, for example, when you have, you know, Professor Hilbert, he is yeah. this literary professor. And, you know, if you look at it, just, just straight up look at it, he, he comes across as a very quirky, he comes across as a very quirky individual. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing, I mean, he is very much, and he is very much looking at this whole thing from a literary angle, which makes sense. Now, the thing is, however quirky he may be, like, strictly speaking, everything he says is pretty much, I mean, he, he he's, there's not really a whole lot he says that is incorrect. Like, hmm. even when he's giving the very strange quiz, well, when he says, oh, right. well, yeah, it's ludicrous, but let's, I mean, yes, it's crazy, but let's start with crazy and work back from there. <laughs> well, you're already, I mean, let's face it. The fact that he's, his life is being narrated, it's already crazy. So, I mean, there's, and then you have, and I mean, I think that even on another level, I mean, what you have with Karen Eiffel, she is going through, I mean, that, I mean, that's, I mean, even right there is kind of where the heaviest themes that I am. I mean, look, I'm like, like the, if there's a, a major theme that I latch on to with this movie, it is effectively the writing process. And, you know, there's in within that the relationship between the writer and the characters that that writer, you know, the, those characters and the right the characters that the writer is bringing to life. And this movie, in a sense, I think one of those things that's been said is sometimes, you know, characters take on a life of their own or you'll have sometimes, you know, some writers where they're writing by the seat of their pants. You know, you've got the plotter versus pantser. I think some people will phrase it as where you put the characters in the book where you create the characters and, you know, you write them, seeing what they're doing. And in a sense, what you have with, you know, the relationship between Karen Eiffel and Harold Crick is kind of the literal manifestation of that where she is. I mean, she is writing a character that she doesn't realize is real. And she's trying to write a book around it. it, it and it kind of stands out where the, where the character she thought she was fictional, she thought was writing and he walks in through the door mm-hmm. and she has that stunned moment where like, this is all exactly as I envisioned it. Yeah, there, there are a couple lines uh, while you were talking that just uh, that I had that I had flagged. Unfortunately, they're available on the Internet. But they they literally are kind of like latching into uh, that you were talking about. So uh, from from the first to the most recent. So when when you first talk about, uh, you know, Professor Hilbert of kind of, you know, again, it starts off with a little quirky because Harold Crick says, 10 seconds ago, you wouldn't even help me. And then Dr. Hibbert uh, replies, it's been a very revealing 10 seconds, which I think is just kind of like funny, you know, kind of like quirky, but also yeah. uh, how, he, how he works. But when to your your second point of just, you know, some of the, the poetry and some, some of the things that are just very, very like well like stated, Uh, Professor Hibbert says, no one wants to die, but unfortunately we do. Harold, you will die someday, sometime. (laughs) Heart failure at a bank, choke on a mint, some long drawn out disease you contracted on a vacation, you will die. 
you will absolutely die. Even if you avoid this death, another will find you. And I guarantee that it will not be nearly as poetic or meaningful as what she's written. You know, which again, you know, I I, I love because of the fact that, yeah, we're we're all gonna go. And, you know, if only. Uh, our death could be well crafted and meaningful and poetic. Again, the the whole notion of you know like a, a, a fate, but also kind of juxtaposing with like free will. You know, knowing yeah. if you know what you know, you know, like would you willingly go with it? But then to um, um, the 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 author, um, you know, Professor Hilbert, you know, um, why would you change the book? I and then uh, Eiffel says. Lots of reasons. I realized I just couldn't do it because he's real, because it's a book about a man who doesn't know he's about to die and then dies. But if the man does know he's going to die and dies anyway, dies willingly, knowing he could stop it, then, I mean, isn't that the type of man you want to keep alive? And it's it's just it's interesting. And. The movie does explore some of these very, very rich, high concept um, perspectives. And again, just the, the just even the the knowing of a fate. And if you had the means and the ability to, I, I, for lack of a better term, playing God, you know, if you, if you knew that, you know, what then? You know, like, what do you do? Yeah. You know, like, it, you know, like, uh, you know. If this person is willing to go along and understand yes. it, like, wouldn't you not feel that responsibility to keep yeah. that type of person alive? And it, it's just, it, it's fascinating. And I, and I love that's where some of this yeah. gets very, very rich and allows itself to be a good conversation for yeah. a podcast like this. Yeah. And I think that when you get into that, that all, I mean, that touches into another one of the themes that I personally find this movie, which is that divide between what is real and what is fiction to kind of make a comparison. Um, you, I mean, you both mentioned it earlier, the Truman show. And then I actually, and you know, before I, you know, was and when I was preparing for this, you know, I went and, you know, listened to that, that episode of your podcast and Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll look at what is the, you know, the difference between what is real and what is fictional and how sometimes that can become blurred and what what difference does it make when something is real versus when it's something fictional? And how do we sometimes lose track of what is real versus what is fictional? And it's one of those things that I think is kind of a one of those things that is kind of a big theme in the world today. When you look at things like social media, where you will think see things that, yes, they're real, but because we see them on our on our screen, we can sometimes lose track of the fact that, no, this is something that is really happening. And with, and you look at what we have here where, hey, when it is just a book, there's no problem. I mean, it's not a real person. I mean, it's not a problem when you kill a character in a book because they are not real. But suddenly, when the character you are writing about walks into your life, like that gives her like an existential crisis mm-hmm. before she, I mean, even with the blessing of the character she is going to kill, like you have, imagine a character you're right, like imagine a character you're writing about in a book, you meet that character 
And that character, you know, gives you his, gives you his blessing to do what you are going to do in that book. But she can't go through with it because at the end of the day, he's a real person. Now you compare that to the Truman Show and you have, I think it's Christoph who's running it, where this is, where Truman is a real person, but how many people have conflated it with being just a TV show? So somehow Mm -hmm. it doesn't actually matter what happens to him. Yeah. I want to, in our our, our third act, if you will, of of, (laughs) of this conversation, um, kind of take a look at some of the performances in this movie. Again, um, you know, just a very, very rich cast. Obviously, you know, we, yeah. we've mentioned who's in this film, but, you know, as a writer, do you, you know, what are your thoughts? You know, like, do you, do you tap more into Emma Thompson's character? Do you tap more into Will Ferrell? Like, you know, or I mean, you can obviously appreciate all of it, but yeah. as you, within your own, uh, you know, uh, sensibilities as, as a viewer, what, what are you attracted to? Like you can appreciate everything, but from, from what you observe, what do you, what do you latch into a little bit more, a little, um, character wise? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it kind of goes back to what I said earlier, where the way I connect with this movie is, you know, I kind of come for Will Ferrell, but I stay for Emma Thompson and Dustin Hoffman because yeah, they all give good. I mean, they all, I mean, I think all the individuals, give a good performance but when i look at the characters themselves it's it really is you know emma thompson dustin hoffman their characters that are really where my focus is on this movie and i mean a lot of it does have to be with a lot of it does have to do with the fact that you know i'm a writer these are characters that are dealing with you know literature but you know going with professor hilbert the way the way, you know, his approach that it's, it can very much come off as quirky, but he, but he's, but it's kind but it's kind of quirky from an outside perspective. If you, and you got to consider he, he is a literary professor who is trying, who is approaching this from a literary perspective. Mm-hmm. And so, in a, so it's, so you can easily see how everything he does makes sense from his perspective because he is actually trying to approach this. I mean, he I mean, Harold comes to him because he's looking for someone with a literary expertise to figure it out. And that is exactly what, you know, Professor Hilbert brings him. He brings him literary expertise. I mean, with Karen Eiffel, well, she's a writer that's trying to go through this and she's she she's. All she really wants, at least until she discovers Harold Crick is real, is to just write a book. Um, And I think this might be a good time to actually, I mean, posit a question related to this. And because it really is one of those things that the movie definitely touches on. But I think it's a good thing it doesn't where it doesn't actually it doesn't dig in it too deeply is the question of now she. Really, what sets her on an existential crisis isn't just that Harold Crick is real, but that she has this entire, I mean, her entire literary career is built on killing her main characters. Mm-hmm. She discovers the latest character she is writing, he is 
he is real. So did she in fact kill did she in fact kill eight other people? <laughs> it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the movie doesn't go into that side of her researching whether or not she did if they were yeah. in fact other uh, other real people, but it is a fun question to yeah kind of to pause it, you know, like, did she, did she? Yeah. And um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there was just something very, very specifically uh, unique and special about Harold Crick that it came to be, or if this is her superpower that she, yeah. you know, uh, I think that's what not uh, like makes this movie like kind of like fantastical, but this also, is part of her dilemma, you know, like part of her um, uh, existential crisis. Have, well, fuck, have I have I killed other people before, <laughs> like unwittingly, like without yeah. that? And what what is the toll that this puts me on? Because she's very very broken when we meet her as a writer. You know, she's yeah. without even the the knowledge that she may or may not have killed people in the past. She's she's. She's she's in a place. I mean, she's in a place to be sure. Um, if you were to ask me, has she done? I think I think yeah. I think she probably has. I think part of that is whether she's consciously aware of it. Well, she's not consciously aware of it, but there is a there is a weight that affects her, and yeah. she understands that her writing has an effect. And it's you know I think there there's been this this toll that has taken. On, you know that that that, she, that you know just affected her for 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 years, and now she knows kind of a little bit of that weight. Um, my my own personal theory, just because you know, Michael, you're asking me, but that's that's what I think. I think, yeah, I think she's probably killed you know a handful or so of people, um, which is horrible but that i think is kind of why she's kind of the, the the hero in in you know to use a hero's journey you know you you, you bring up mm -hmm. george lucas as you know one of your your you know your your favorite forms of inspiration i mean well shit he goes back to the whole hero's journey i mean that's what star oh, yeah. wars is right yeah i mean star wars is basically the best modern iteration that you know the best most modern most refined iteration of that hero's journey yeah so if you look at it at the sense that uh uh to borrow a phrase you know she's her own you know luke skywalker and you know uh hilbert is you know her her obi-wan you know like the, the the scenario like her her um you know her inciting incident is that she finds that uh, she's actually, you know, killing real people. And what, what does that mean? You know, like, what are, what, what is she going to do with, with that knowledge? And, and so, you know, she, she deviates and she, uh, you know, she, she saves somebody, um, even though the, the ending that she gives him is still nice. It wasn't as good as if, you know, she would have killed him according to, to, uh, professor Hilbert, <laughs> but, it's I, I think it works in if you, if you use kind of kind of that, you know, if, if, you, if you use the, that type of groundwork and in, in those rules, I think I think it makes sense. I think it's it's poetic in a sense that that, yeah, she 
um, as sad as it is. Yeah, she's 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 got a lot of blood on her hands. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that actually touched. T- I mean, a lot of that touches on some of the thoughts I have, but I because I have like two possible approaches to it. One is like the straight up approach where I really didn't dig into it too much, where my thought is, yes, she probably has more because that is the simpler explanation. Like it makes a lot more sense that, yes, this is just something that has happened versus some for some reason in this instance. No, she is actually killed. I mean, for some reason it's happened. Now, as I was you know thinking about it more. Now, as you, I mean, as you pointed out, and uh, is that yes, even when we meet her, Karen Eiffel is a very troubled woman. Now, it mm-hmm. makes her, I mean, it makes it very her very entertaining to watch. You have like a moment that comes to mind is like when you have her first meeting, you know, Queen Latifah's character, Penny Escher, you know, her secretary, and you know, she's smoking, she's got a bottle, she's got a bottle of alcohol, and you know, <laughs> you know, Penny, she hands her an ashtray, and what does she do instead? She, you know. She kind of protests. She just drops her cigarette into her alcohol. Like it's like she's absolutely, absolutely refuses to cooperate. So in that regard, I think there is a there is a possible scenario in which. No, she hasn't actually killed those other characters, but the reason that this is happening is if you consider the possibility of not anything specific, but if there is maybe some higher power that is arranging this, that knows how things are going to work out, mm. where ultimately these two care, these, I mean, you have Karen Eiffel, who is a very troubled woman and Harold Crick, who is a man who is just, he has no life. And they basically save each other. Like they're both in bad places. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the movie, as a result of this interaction, result of meeting each other, they both come out of it much better people. Like, I mean, like he's got a full life. Yeah. And even like, I mean, it's I think some of it may be subtle, but you can definitely see the change of character. I mean, like the way she is dressed through most of the movie and you know her body language but then in like that final scene when she is meeting with professor hilbert where she no i could not go through with killing this man but that's there's a definite shift there i mean it isn't spelled out but you can see it in those subtle cues no this is i mean she's kind of has her she's kind of a new woman in a sense and yeah She's, I mean, she's, she doesn't care that it's not the best work. She just cares that, Hey, I like, there's a sense of, she can say to herself, no, I didn't kill this man for a piece of literature. And there's a sense of, you you know, you get a sense of like, sometimes you wonder what are like, am I a good person? And that Mm -hmm. is one of those signs that tells you yet deep down when it counts that inner character of no, I could not kill a person for real. It comes through. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I, uh, and for me, and which is why I think they they kind of work is the fact that why this story is different is because she now knows. You know, she yeah. she's now seeing um, 
you know, in, in a bigger picture. And, and again, it goes on the flow oh, yeah. side, but like when you, when you put it, his perspective, if you know that everything you do is already predetermined, do you accept it or do you go willingly? And then on the flip side, if you know that anything you do uh, is going to have an effect, do you allow it to happen or do you change it? Yeah. It's kind of like weird, like yeah. different sides of the same mirror of, uh, you know, just kind of like different, different angles of a reflection. And yeah. it it allows itself to be a really good conversation, which is why. Oh, I yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of stuff in there that isn't spelled out and leaves mm-hmm. room for people to discuss the interpretation of what is actually going on. Yeah. Like you talk about like the element of fate and what's actually in control. And the thing is, while she is writing it, there is very much, there's enough in there to leave open the question of how much control does she have and mm-hmm. how much might it be she is just picking up it on what's actually happening? because. I mean, there because I mean, Harold Crick obviously does not behave entirely the way she wants him to. Mm -hmm. And there's even certain moments where she is narrating. And while it may be strictly true what she's saying, the actual the actual behavior on the part of Harold Crick does not line up with what with what um, Karen Eiffel is actually putting to page. Well said. Well said. Um, one thing that I want to mention, and I feel like we 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 have to because there's another character that we didn't really quite uh, address, and it's not a character really in the movie per se. But I think in this film, I think the music also is a character, yeah. and not and well, shit. I mean, I think I often reference soundtracks, but this one I definitely yeah. want to stop and bring attention to because uh, I thoroughly enjoy. Uh, the soundtrack. I don't know where you stand, but kind of like one of the producers of the soundtrack is an artist by the name of Britt Daniel, who is the front man for one of my my favorite bands. I used to live in Austin, Texas, and this band is out of Austin, Texas. They're called Spoon. And and there are several like several songs from Spoon on the soundtrack, in addition yeah. to myriad of other you know songs from uh, Shoot the Jam have a song. Um uh, Maximo Park, Reckless Eric, you know, many, many songs, but the the driving force on the soundtrack is by uh, Britt Daniel. Okay. Uh, they, the, the the main song from this film is a song called The Book I Write, but you have a lot yeah, of- Yeah, the one that's in the, the, yeah, the one that closes the movie out yep. with the credits. Yep. And um, I will say one thing that I find funny with you have that, that credit song that really comes to mind is the song they follow it up with is that- Anytime I'm, you know, anytime I get to the credits and sitting through the credits, it becomes very difficult to tell that, oh, yeah, they actually did switch to a separate song because the end of Book I Write and the next song, it feels like it's just like a, they, they, they brought the main portion of that song to an, technically to an end, but now they're just doing a jam session, but it's all part of the same track. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, you know, uh, I don't know if you were, you know, a, a fan of it, but yeah, again, I, I, I love it because, you know, it, it, it's, I don't know, it's just kind of fun because of the fact that, uh, it's a indie rock band and okay. obviously, uh, you know, Harold wanted to explore being a musician and, you know, he, 
uh the the song he 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 jams out to is kind of a uh song from the jam you know so uh that's entertainment um you know just kind of kind of kind of kind of cool that that or was it that's entertainment or the whole wide world no whole wide world um yeah. but you know just the the whole the whole notion of just kind of like independent music and this movie uses a a very very well respected indie rock band of the past like 20 years and so mm-hmm. i just kind of like a little button but just something that i wanted to uh take a little take a little appreciation to no, show I, that one of my favorite bands that gets uh, a right. a little love in the soundtrack well, I'm, I mean, I'm going to say, I mean, I think the, the soundtrack is, I mean, service. I mean, I think the soundtrack is good, um, but I think this is somewhere where you have you. I mean, it's very much on, I mean, any where it's very much. I've been trying not to say this the wrong, but it's. I, I mean, the soundtrack, I mean, yeah, it's it's good. It works for it, but it, it's for me, it's something that I guess I haven't given a lot of thought to because. But but I think you do bring a good, up a good point of you know the music in there, but and you know you have what is Harold's ambition that he finally gets to is he playing the car. Um, I will say something that um, I did find interesting as I was looking into this is like you got the that's entertainment song that plays you know while he's initially starting out. And let me see if I can um, look it up because what I found when I was looking. Because I decided to try, you know, looking up and, you know, maybe just listening because there's it's it's an interesting song when you listen to it, because there's not really. Because it's it's weird in that it's a sense of um, it's basically a, just a series of events and it's 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 kind of strange in a way. So when I went to look it up, what I found, what I let's see. Is if I can find it. So it turns out there is another song by the same name. That's entertainment. That um, looks like it's from from the bandwagon from 1953. Okay. Now listening to that version. Now it's a different song, but thematically it's it's like it's too, so. What you have is this version in this movie and this version from this other show. What I get the sense is they're they're the same. I mean, they're kind of the, telling the same story, but they're doing it with different lyrics. Like both of them are just like the the older version. As it turns out, it's like, hey, this is a bunch of things. Like it's all entertainment, mm. and, and in a sense, and I think that listening to that and figuring that out kind of brings an extra level to what i mean what you have in this movie and i don't know whether there's anything intentional there or whether i i mean i don't know if it was intentional but part of me would not be surprised if the version that was i mean if the version that was used for this movie was aware of that original song and it's basically hey we're doing our own riff we're doing our own reiteration on this basic idea Mm. uh in our final final couple moments Michael, what would you like to close out in this discussion discussing Stranger Than Fictions? How would you like – do we miss anything? Is there anything that you'd want to uh, cover uh, in our closing moments? Okay. Well, I'd say one um, thing that I – well, one um, like element I'd like to cover that I really wrote down that I really like is one – 
maybe I should have brought this up when you said, hey, are there any scenes? And you have when um, Karen Arthur, she's trying to, you know, her introduction, she's standing on a desk, quote unquote, doing research, trying mm. to figure out how do I kill Harold Crick? And a line that I think really stands out, and, you know, I mentioned one of the themes I see is, you know, the writing process and the relationship between the writers and the characters. And she says, you you cannot simply throw, I mean, I cannot throw Harold Crick off a building. And I think that's, I mean, that's something that really, that, I mean, that's because one of those things that I think really help kind of really differentiates when you have someone who is like a professional writer versus an amateur writer is I kind of touched on early on is, you know, you have to make things make sense within the confines of the story. And so realistically, no, I mean, no, as much as you want to, you can't just make characters do what you want. I mean, yes, she could throw Harold Crick off a building if she really wanted to, but it, but unless it makes sense, well, People, I mean, it's not, it's just not going to resonate. And I don't know. I mean, I, there is a, I mean, I think there's a lot, I mean, if there were time, there's a lot I could go into as far as, you know, the, you know, because I think there is very much an element here where if I were teaching an introduction to literary, an introduction to literature to like, is like an, intro, like an early college course, maybe a senior high school course, I could very much imagine using this movie as an instructional tool you also have elements like like professor hilbert he's going on hey the story needs how does the story progress he's standing by the door it turns into a humorous moment but hey if i stand here the story cannot progress also Mm -hmm. i'm late and so there's and that's and then it goes back to how does this movie connect for me and it's the literary and it's moments like that where it discusses literary elements and a lot of times it explains them, but then, and then it demonstrates them. And that kind of comes back and that kind of comes back to this. A lot of this movie is comparatively mundane when you get compared to what so, and that allows it to focus on the actual literary elements allows you to, it allows the movie to actually focus on Here's how literature works. Here's things like, no, you can't just make the character do whatever you want, you know, looking for inspiration. You know, you look at the way the the finale is gradually set up, the different phases. You have the introduction between the kid and the bus driver early on. You basically have spelled out how it's going to end when she's envisioning the envisioning the bus, you know, envisioning driving the car off of the bridge, but it's only later that. Oh, these pieces that she has seen finally click when she sees the apple. And it's like, so yeah, I mean, that's, and that's really how this movie comes together for me and why I, I, I such enjoy it on a fascination level on several. I think that may be why there's certain elements of the movie that, you know, from a traditional angle, don't necessarily click because I'm coming at it from a different perspective. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to, I mean, yeah, it is a good movie and I'm, yeah, so. This film, um, if there's been a critique, if there's been a critique, there has been discussion on whether or not the film sticks the landing. Now, I personally, I love the ending. Um, 
and I'm, I'm just kind of curious, you know, we, we don't have to go into a lengthy discussion, but are are you satisfied? Do you think the, the, the final act of this film is satisfying? I would say that, I would say that, yes, the final act is, um, the final act, I'd say it sticks it. Um, I don't know, because, because, I mean, one of the, I'd say, I don't know, I mean, yeah, I think the final act and bring it all together really works. If I were to have a criticism, I think it'd be something that's more like middle, early middle, because mm. one of the things that I think really holds it back for me is that I don't think they quite nail the love story. Mm. I mean, I think it's serviceable. But and I can if I think about it enough, I can see how it works. But within watching the within watching in the moment, the you know, the relationship between Harold Crick and Anna Pascal, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. Like you don't see see how it comes from like like don't I don't think it's properly set up. And I think. So if I have a criticism about the movie, I'd say that's where it is where they could have done more to refine the love, re- yeah. refine the love story and do a better job setting it up. If I think about it, I can understand how it works. The thing is that when you're watching a movie, you want things you want things like that to click in the moment rather than having to go back and justify how it works after the fact. It's very, very fair. Uh, and I don't I don't have any disagreements with that. Yeah. Um, Michael, this has been so much fun. Thank you for yeah. for hopping on the show. Thank you for letting me go back to uh, a movie that that I thoroughly enjoyed and uh, yeah. me the opportunity to jam out on the soundtrack for the past couple of weeks. <laughs> um, this has been so much fun. So um, before we we close out, I always ask the guests and 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 I'll ask you as well. So. How can the the listeners find out more about you? Okay, well, I've got I'd say um, if I'm able, like three things I'll name. Um, I don't really have a website of my own, but if people want to find my book, I've been basically using Goodreads as the go-to because it's just a good. I think it's a good general source. You know, you can read, you can see the cover, you can read the back cover description that summarizes it, which. Hey, if you're walking into a bookstore, those are probably going to be the two things, first things you're going to look at anyway. And from there, the website has, you know, it it provides links to your general book, book. So your general book, you, you can go there, you can take there from to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, all that. So for the book, you want to go there. Um, otherwise, um, for learning more about me, um, there's a couple um, other other shows that I, I mean, when I was on um, like last week, which was called Famous Interviews with Joe Domino, um, which I, was more of just a general interview where I talk more about myself, more about my life, how I developed as a writer. So if you want to learn more about just me as an individual, that's one that I recorded recently that uh, is a good place to, you know, you know, get a better sense of who I am. Um, one that's going to be coming up. I can't give a specific date. Um, is I'm going to be making a, a, a return appearance on. It's called Another Top Ten, 
which is a podcast hosted by a man called uh, Kyle White, where it's him and a where in a sense similar to the way you work is guests will come to him present, hey, here's a theme for a top 10 list. And then both Kyle White and the guest will put together a top 10 list of their personal favorite picks. And it could be pretty much anything like what we're going to be discussing when I show up is appropriately enough. It's going to be our top 10 favorite movie deaths. Mm. Um, so, um, so um, I can't, I, I don't know specifically when that will be available, but the good thing is, is that he's got a number of, I mean, there are plenty of episodes to watch already. I've been, I've, appeared a couple times already with a couple other subjects and also he also really likes movies and if you like movies as well and if you're listening to this podcast i can't imagine why you wouldn't be a fan of movies um there will be plenty of movie themed lists for you to listen to and enjoy and get to get a couple sometimes maybe three on one occasional even four people going through listing hey in this topic these are my personal top 10 and get their insights into why they enjoy those particular picks. So yeah, Goodreads for my book. Um, if you want to learn more about me in general, it's famous interviews with Joe Domino. And then coming up uh, it at some point in the near future, it's another top 10 um, hosted by Kyle White. Michael, thank you again. I've had a really, really great conversation, and this has been so much fun, and I've, I've, I've enjoyed learning a little bit about you. I've really enjoyed taking a deep dive in uh, Stranger Than Fiction, so I, I say it all the time, but it, it, it I, I, you know, I, I shoot myself if I didn't say it to you as well. Anytime you ever want to come back and you want to talk about you know, uh, anything else you're working on if right. you, or if you want all to right. talk about more films, yes. give an invitation, good sir. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I have had I have had a great time. It's you know, it's it, it's definitely been it's it's definitely been enjoyable talking about this you know talking about this movie, especially as you know finding something that is you know not your something that isn't necessarily in the mainstream because and you know it's just it's just a fun time having these conversations, mm -hmm. getting on shows with people, and just you know talking about things that you enjoy for one reason or another. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Stangland. Again, thank you very, very, very much indeed to Michael Stangland. And thank you to, well, you, dear listener. Uh, we have got one more episode of the season remaining, and I'm excited. As a reminder, please check out the show's notes, uh, which you can do if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on my website, stampercinema.com. Uh, check out those show notes because we'll have more information on Michael's work, where to find his novel, uh, some of the things that he had referenced. I'll also have links on the film we covered today, Stranger Than Fiction. So like an IMDb link, Rotten Tomatoes link, and I'll probably put a link for the closing credit sequence where we get the book I write, the the original song that Spoon wrote for this film. Um, but yeah, that's all I've got for you this week. Please do us a favor by rating the show and leaving a review, telling your friends, you know, follow me on Instagram, uh, Twitter, or whatever they call Twitter, Facebook, etc. And that's all I have. So we've got one more episode coming at you this season real soon. But until then, this is Andrew signing off with Stanford Cinema. Stanford Cinema.